0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 347, Malta, Dark Days Are Coming. When we last left the Mediterranean Theater, Admiral Cunningham's Captain Philip Mack of the destroyer HMS Jervis had led a force of four destroyers against an Axis convoy, and the end result was one lost British destroyer against five Axis merchant ships and three Italian destroyers, just off the waters of Tunisia. This had been the Battle of the Tarigo Convoy of April 16, 1941. The victory, locally speaking, was another example of what Admiral Cunningham's crews could do under the right circumstances. problem was, after each victory, London assessed ABC's abilities even higher and wanted to see more, yet the needed increase in supplies for this was not forthcoming. Cunningham, a man who made others shiver with fear and anger, himself now shook with rage. Why didn't London better comprehend what he was going through? If they wanted more victories, the Mediterranean needed more ships and supplies. It was that simple. And yet, it wasn't that simple. Because just days after their latest naval victory, the Admiralty backed by Churchill, had just come up with a cunning plan. As London saw it, the Allied ground forces in North Africa weren't enough at the moment to win the area outright. What was needed was for the Axis partners who were pushing towards Egypt to have fewer supplies and men. This would force them to call off their offensive. So the Admiralty was ordering Cunningham to sacrifice the battleship Barham, and a cruiser of his choosing, to sink them at the opening of the harbor at Tripoli. As this was the largest port of Libya, it would only be a matter of time before the Axis offensive was wound down. Not that anyone in London heard this, but Cunningham blew his stack, again, after reading this message. He did not have enough ships as it was, and now the desk jockeys wanted him to sacrifice two of his ships. Besides, the chances of success, getting a ship that close to enemy territory and then sinking it after getting all the personnel safely off, would not be an easy thing. And this is exactly what Cunningham told his superior, Admiral Dudley Pound, the First Sea Lord. Normally, this would be the place where a Dudley quote would go. But suffice it to say, Pound's response was, The War Cabinet wants it, so make it happen. Period which did nothing to calm Cunningham down. Do they have any idea how busy he and his were? A German supply column of trucks had just been bombarded in Libya from the sea. Hell, a few German columns. Also, ABC was using all of his cunning to get supplies to the holdout that was to Brook. And, as he wrote to Pound, "...no less than four operations are in train for the next 24 hours." We are not idle in Libya, and no one out here will say that the Navy has let them down. Which was true enough. But Churchill's ability to see Africa and the Middle East unraveling if Malta was lost caused him to expect much from Cunningham. It was a case more of desire of outcome versus the reality on the ground. But the Mediterranean admiral kept at it, explaining to the Admiralty that losing ships, even to potentially block a harbor, was a bad investment. And because of his harping, the plan was changed. Instead, Tripoli would be bombarded, and from further away than initially desired. Next, instead of just the two ships as before, Cunningham was to bring to bear all he could for this attack. Now, this was something that ABC could get behind, so he told London that after the tanker Breconshire arrived at Malta, the escorts of it and other warships would head for Tripoli on April 20th. If all went well, they would arrive by early morning and be able to inflict significant damage and, perhaps, catch a few ships in port. But given the priority of Tripoli even before this naval attack, Wellington bombers from Egypt and swordfish planes from Malta were to launch their own attacks, hopefully disrupting normal operations as well as weakening defenses. And to gauge the destruction, the sub-truant would sit just outside of the harbor and keep score. The naval bombardment was carried out as just over 500 tons of explosives were aimed at the port facilities. However, 24 hours later the port was fully operational. The risk taken, not to mention the use of fuel and explosives, did not see a good return. From this, Cunningham expected Admiral Pound and the Prime Minister himself to come down hard on him, and to this, he had no answer. But the shouts never came. Instead, all anger turned to nervous anxiety as the war in Greece was not going well. Clearly, ABC's fleet would be needed again to evacuate those men. It had been Cunningham's ships that had taken there in the first place, from Cyrene Still, the overall question of being able to effectively neutralize the port hung in the air. Bombardment was clearly not the answer, and Malta could only supply so many ships at one time. No, what would fit the bill was a force that did not need air protection, nor a massive amount of fuel, and Could hide when needed. In other words, Cunningham needed submarines, more than he currently had. Not that the subs based at Malta were being let off the hook. It was high time, London said. They paid for their upkeep. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, You need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor yahoofinance.com The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com That's yahoofinance.com Doing his best to achieve this, Lieutenant Commander David Wanklin, or Wanks as he was known, was following an unmarked ship on April 24th. True, there were no markings or flags, but the vessel was clearly laden with supplies and as it was just off the east coast of Tunisia, it was probably not on holiday. Wanks decided to move in. Because it was not a warship, Wanks ordered that his sub-upholder, though it was on the surface currently, go full speed. The waters were rough, and thus firing a torpedo would be a bit of a challenge, but Wanks had every confidence in his number one, that is, Tubby Crawford who was to help the two hydroplane operators keep the sub even. Winks was at the control room, beside the periscope, giving orders. Besides the normal tension of engaging in war, the sub crew was anxious to get this right, as rumors had been swirling that Cunningham, the Admiralty, held Churchill himself, was currently not impressed with the Malta-based sub fleet. This put Captain George Shrimp Simpson, the commander of the 10th Submarine Flotilla, in a delicate situation. The subs either had to show what they could do, or a new commander would be brought in, and no one wanted Shrimp to go anywhere. Also, there was a chance that Shrimp would replace Wanks before he was removed, which only added to the tension in the sub. The control room was quite small. Hence, any hesitation or fear on Wanks' part would be picked up by the men around him. Turns out that a sub-commander has to be a part-time actor as well, and Wanks played the cool commander under duress to perfection. Tubby Crawford went on being impressed. When the upholder got to within 700 yards of the target vessel, Wanks ordered that two torpedoes be fired As the two fish left the prow of the sub, the upholder shook for a second, having two large objects push away from it with such force. Now, it was a waiting game. Just after 25 seconds, and that amount of time had seemed an eternity to the sub crew, there were two massive explosions. The good news was the target had been hit. The bad news was that the target had been hit while close to the upholder. Feeling the shockwave, the sub shook. Some of her bulbs in the control room actually shattered. But it was a small price to pay for such a score. Wanks ordered the upholder to the northeast. Tubby looked at his commander again. The order to move out was given calmly, but there had been a ghost of a smile on Wanks' face. Though he was trying to hide it, everyone around him could sense it, and they all went about their tasks with a little lift in their spirits. As the merchant ship had been attacked near the island of Lampedusa, the upholder started on a course to the northeast to make for Malta, which was roughly due east of the island itself. But soon a message came in. The sub was now to make for the Tunisian coast, for an enemy destroyer and supply ship had been harassed to the point of being run aground. What elation there was amongst the crew just evaporated. Oh, they would do their duty, but they all knew that going that close to the Tunisian coast would put them in easy range of the coastal guns, land based planes, and besides which, as the water was shallow where they were going, if they came upon an enemy's surface vessel, there would be no option to dive, the sub's greatest weapon. Still, needs must. Wanks had the upholder alter course. As the sub got closer to its target, Winks decided to dive, at least while he could. His plan was to get as close as he could while submerged, but then approach, while on the surface, at night. The Admiralty would have to wait for a few hours, but the upholder crew would endeavor to make it worth it. When the upholder got close to the two targets, it was clear to all that the water was so shallow the sub couldn't even fire off a torpedo if it wanted to what to do. But Wanks had the answer. He told his crew that he would wait for it to get darker, and then, while on the surface, they would glide right up to the two ships and set them on fire. The upholder moved in, closer and closer. No warning shots were raised in alarm. Alongside the merchant ship now, no enemy personnel could be seen. Were they all asleep, or had they been all removed until help arrived? Either way, Wanks saw his chance. Arming a boarding party, the men slipped onto the Italian vessel. Walking around, important-looking papers were snatched up. Then the demolition charges were set. But by the time they were about to leave, several of the subcrew were now wearing German tin helmets or had other parting gifts from the ship. Back aboard the upholder, Wanks looked over at the Italian destroyer. But as it was in even more shallow waters, it would have to wait for another day. The sub slipped away. Minutes later, numerous explosions could be heard. The sub crew had mixed emotions as they departed. Yes, they had done something daring, cruising right up to an enemy ship, and they destroyed it. Still, the destroyer had been left undamaged. But the upholder would make up for this a few days later. In late April, the upholder came upon five convoy ships with four escorts. This was even closer to the North African coast than they had been a few days ago. But Winks and company were more confident now, having escaped a few scrapes. Also, there were still the orders from London to do something about the supplies getting to Rommel. This scene had played itself out before, a few times, and though Tubby Crawford Wanks and their men were anxious, they had a much better idea of what they were doing and what they were heading into. Tubby did his utmost to keep the sub level, leaving Wanks to call out orders, getting into the perfect place to launch their attack. After a few course corrections, Wanks calmly ordered a full spread of four torpedoes. It took almost a full minute, but then three explosions could be heard. One German ship, was hit by the first two fish, and a smaller vessel was hit by the third. The fourth fish missed completely, but these were much better results than when they had first come to the Mediterranean. But if Cunningham, Commander Shrimp, or the Admiralty needed further proof that the sub-crews were maturing, at least those on the HMS upholder, that was offered up as Italian warships gave chase after the torpedoes exploded. But they were unable to finish off the sub. Then, incredibly, Wanks had the gall, the temerity, to turn around, return to the spot an hour later, and finish off the damaged merchant ship Now on their way back to Malta, the crew of the Upholder got ready by preparing for a tradition that had recently been brought back from the Great War. War vessels that had scored kills would raise a Jolly Roger, that is, a flag with a skull and crossbones. Think Captain Hook of Peter Pan fame. Ironically, this sign of having killed an enemy was first sown by the nuns of Malta. Theirs was a life of peace, but they certainly supported keeping Malta free from Germany and Italy. Further, a white bar would be added to the bottom of the flag, indicating the number of enemy ships sunk. Thus, when the upholder appeared near the harbor, the Jolly Roger was flapping in the wind, with four bars at its bottom. When Shrimp Simpson looked through his binoculars, he saw a strange image, certainly for a British submarine. Some of the crew was standing aloft and wearing German tin helmets. Shrimp was confused, but delighted. If Malta was to hold out, its enemies to the north and south had to be hit at every opportunity. And as the sub-upholder had done its job, it was now time to attack again, but this time from the skies. Admiral Cunningham realized that his bombardment of the North African port city had not been that effective, shutting down the place for perhaps 24 hours. But still, it was something, and it made London happy. The next step seemed obvious. If Tripoli could not be taken out in one massive attack, then perhaps many little tiny attacks could achieve the same result. The result being that on May 5th, Nat Gold and 830 Fleet Air Arm Squadron were up in the air again heading for North Africa, with magnetic mines or cucumbers attached. By now, Nat Gold, if pushed, could probably draw a fairly accurate map of the shoreline around Tripoli. Lord knows he had flown over it enough. But on May 5th, Nat's plane and the three other swordfish biplanes were on their way in this latest blow to the access receiving supplies in North Africa. As the swordfish had been taking off from how far on the island's southeast corner, the crews were keenly aware of the cucumbers under their respective plane. The Germans and Italians had not stopped bombing the Maltese airfields, and the result was taking off from how far was not the easiest or safest action to take. A hole not properly filled in could cause the plane to bounce, which could loosen the cucumber, and then Well, that particular crew would not have to worry about the enemy's AA guns or anything else, ever again. Their trip would be over right then and there. But what gave Nat and the others hope was the very thing that could kill them on the runway. The magnetic mines had various settings. Once they were dropped, the cucumbers would sit there just under the water's surface, waiting for the next enemy ship to go by. But making them even more unpredictable and thus effective, some of them would detonate after being passed by only once. Other mines, with different settings, would have to be passed by, say, 11 times or somewhere in between. In other words, each mine was set to go off after a different number of passes, so the people at Tripoli could never really say the harbor had been cleared after the latest explosion. And with the Malta-based pilots renewing this supply on a regular basis, the various crews working at Tripoli would never know if they were safe until a ship was far away from the harbor's entrance. It was at 6.45 p.m. that May 5th that Nat Gold and the other part of 830 Squadron took off. This would give them enough light, hopefully, to make the bomb run, but would have them returning home in the relative safety of darkness. That the skies had been clear over Malta led Nat to pray that this was the case over Tripoli. It was not, but needs must. The mission continued. 830 Squadron knew they were close to the port city, but not sure exactly where they were through all the clouds. But suddenly, searchlights and AA fire were directed their way. This must be the place. A practiced veteran by now, Nat Gold knew that his swordfish, all of the swordfish, would approach the harbor with their left side facing the enemy. This was because the plane's exhaust was on the right side, and it gave off sparks, which would let the enemy know exactly where the plane was. Because the cucumbers had to be dropped in a specific area, the pilots had to get close to that location. Very close. Starting their descent at 4,000 feet, the pilots would cut their engine off. The idea was to glide in for the last part, drop the bomb, restart the engine, and then get the hell out of there. This was, of course, based on the assumption that they would not be blown out of the sky once their engines were off and their paths fixed. Even for someone like Nat, this was the hardest part of the mission. One had to simply wait and try to forget that the only thing that was between him and a shell was a metal frame and some treated cloth, and hopefully a whole lot of luck. When the appropriate swordfish was 100 feet above the water's surface and 400 feet away from its target, the magnetic mine was dropped. Now it was time to restart that engine. The good news was that Nat's Pegasus engine kicked into life. The bad news was that the nearby AA gun said, Thank you. For showing us where you are. As expected, tracers started lighting the sky around the planes. But this time, Nat noticed the little lights of death were also coming from the harbor. Squinting his eyes, Nat located an Italian destroyer out in the harbor. So, he thought, the Italians were getting better at reacting to our regular attacks. Nat could only think, as he spotted the other ships in the harbor, too bad we didn't have dive bombers with us. Still, the mission had been accomplished. With the damage being regularly inflicted on Tripoli, more good news came in. Cunningham's constant harping for more aircraft began to pay off. On April 27th, just days before Nat Gold's latest attack, 23 new hurricanes arrived on Malta, and more were promised for the next month. But, in a very real sense, this was not a net gain for Malta's defense. For example, 261 Squadron based at Takali in the island's center was on its last leg, in terms of workable planes, its men, and the airstrip. Yes, Cunningham and company were certainly doing their part in striking at the enemy, but so was the enemy. German and Italian bombers and fighters arrived over Malta practically every day, and one target that was never missed was the Takali Airfield, thus its potholes and ruined buildings. Another example of good news being less positive than promised was the arrival of a new squadron, 249. Among the pilots was ace pilot officer Tom Neal, who had eight and a half kills, thus he was an ace, and Tommy Thompson, who seemed to be someone who could not do anything right, that is, until he was sitting in a hurricane. Then, for whatever reason, it all came together for him, not unlike Warburton or Worby, who was a complete goof on the ground, but someone who could get you any reconnaissance photo that you needed. Their journey to Malta began at Liverpool as they boarded the carrier HMS Furious. Yet, to Tom Neal's eyes, the carrier was not a sight to inspire confidence. There was no other word for it. The old girl looked tired. She certainly wasn't shiny, which is what Tom was used to, having lived in Liverpool for most of his life. Then there was the trip to Malta itself. This did not go well either. There were several mishaps. But in the end, 249 Squadron flew their Hurricanes onto Malta from nearby Gibraltar. Of course, as they were coming in, German bombers were just leaving. But 249 did not have the fuel to pursue, which was indicative of life on Malta. The eventful trip was only the beginning of bad news for 249. First, they would not be continuing on to Egypt. Rather, 261 Squadron, which had been battered for the last few months, would go in their stead, and those men had certainly earned a break. And 261 would be taking the newly arrived Hurricane Mark IIs with them. Thank you very much which left Tom Neal, Tommy Thompson, and the rest of 249 with the planes that were left over of 261, that is, those that were still operational. Just days before 249 Squadron arrived on Malta, Acting Governor General Dobby was promoted. The acting part of his title was removed, which boosted his confidence to know that London had confidence in him which was quite the change as some on Malta and back in London did not think Dobby was up to the task, that he would surrender the island if given a chance. It was the farthest thing from Dobby's mind, but he could not control what others were thinking or saying. It helped Dobby immeasurably when he wrote to Churchill on May 8th, I am not anxious about the security of Malta. It can and will hold on whatever happens elsewhere. Now, this was not written to ingratiate himself to the belligerent Prime Minister, but rather to let the Prime Minister know that he could, if he needed to, focus elsewhere, that Malta would stay in the fight. If anything, Dobby felt bad that Malta did not have enough resources to defend the island and help with the wider Mediterranean War. Yet what Dobby, Cunningham, nor Churchill knew was that the Germans... Almost paid Malta a visit that spring of nineteen forty-one. Section L of the Oberkommando der Wehrmacht, or OKW, the High Command of the Armed Forces, was ordered to investigate the possibility of invading Malta or Crete. Unsurprisingly, the German Army, Navy, and Air Force wanted Malta. This victory alone would probably guarantee North Africa, Egypt, the Suez Canal and the Middle East. Still, Hitler overruled them all and said, it would be Crete that we will take. Der Fuhrer was still worried about the Romanian oil fields, that if the British possessed Crete, they would use it to launch air attacks. The German staff found Hitler's logic lacking, but not his stern order. Crete, it would be. As we have previously seen, the Germans started their airborne assault on Crete, On May 20th, seven days later, Cunningham was told to prepare for a massive evacuation. First Greece, and now Crete. The Allies were not winning this war, nor was it, now sure, if they were holding their own. They were simply holding out. Indeed, the order to evacuate was given. But by the time the 16,500 Allied troops were lifted off Crete, Cunningham's Mediterranean fleet had three less cruisers, six fewer destroyers, and seven other ships that would be out for months with repairs. Perhaps the British were not even holding out. Cunningham was certainly at his lowest point, but his concern was for his men, because they were the one doing the fighting. If their spirits broke, no cleverness on Cunningham's, Churchill's, or the War Council's part remedy that. Postscript. First, if you are so inclined, the pilot that I mentioned earlier, Thomas Francis Ginger Neal, or Tom Neal, has written numerous books about his experiences in the war. You should check them out. I think there's eight or nine of them. Next, as much as the average World War II buff enjoys power and speed, please note the following. The Fairy Swordfish A biplane torpedo bomber designed by the Ferry Aviation Company, and it first came out in 1934, was obsolete by 1939. However, according to the Aviation History Online Museum, the swordfish sank more tonnage than any other Allied plane during World War II, and served from the beginning of the war until the end. After all, it was Cunningham's ace that helped at the raid at the port of Taranto, And, though the pilot did not know it at the time, a swordfish had made the critical hit that sank the German battleship, the Bismarck. So, as you dear listeners grow older, while I crack on trying to finish World War II, just know youth isn't everything. It's motivation and utility, that is, being useful in numerous ways, that helps keep one valuable. Next, uh, please know that if you have recently donated or become a member, I will get to you next time. I just wanted to get this episode out. But still, I would like to take a moment and start something new and just say hi to some of the members at random. So I would like to say hello to Ian Donaldson, Michael Bloom, Jeff Reinhardt, Bruce Ryan, Tim Freeman, and Greg Alton. And I'll do more later. And lastly, as it's become something of a tradition for me, to butcher foreign names and cities, well, Chris from a Flat Pack History of Sweden podcast has taken pity on me. If I remember correctly, he worked on Malta for a few years and got the hang of their pronunciations. The following recording is his attempt to help me and educate you. Thank you, Chris, and please everyone check out his podcast.
1: Hello, Ray, and hello to all of Ray's listeners. My name's Chris from A Flatpack History of Sweden, and I thought I would just read through a few of these uh, tricky Maltese place names that have been coming up on the recent episodes of History of World War II. Like always, uh, Ray recommends to have a look at a map, so I'm going to do the same thing. Uh, we'll start in the north, where we start with Adira, and then Maliha. And then going over to the east of the country, we have a lovely place called Nashar, which uh, in Maltese, an X is a SH for shop. So it's a SH sound for an X. And keep going to the east of Nashar, we have St. Julian's, Sliema, Zira, Umsida, Valletta, and then to the north side of Valletta, you have marsam Shet Harbour and Manuel Island, where Fort Manuel is. And just to the west of that is Tashbish, Pieta, and Hamrun. And on the other side of Valletta, you have the Grand Harbour, which is surrounded by the three cities of Malta, as they're called, uh, Vittoriosa, Senglia, and Cospicua. And further to the southeast, you have Massa Scala and Massa Schlock, and further round to the south, you have Berzabuja. And to the west and the southwest, you have places like Rendi and Dingli. And then you end up in the middle of the country with places like Mosta, Mdina... Kakara and the three main RAF bases that were on water during the Second World War, Lua, Taali and how And they're slightly uh, hard to say because the Q is it's not entirely silent, it's more like a, a breath or like a gap in the word. So Luca is how many people would say it because it's LuQA, but it's more like Lua. And I think that's it for me. I won't keep going on for too long and I'll let you continue listening to this great podcast that Ray makes for us all. Goodbye.